Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 41, From Republic to Empire. Historians love to categorise Roman history into three phases. Firstly, the Roman Kingdom, then the Roman Republic, and then the Roman Empire. The reality is that Rome evolved over time and went through many different phases, and the three categories really only refer to the ruling elite. During the years of the Kingdom and the Empire, there was a head statesman. In the time in the middle, the Republic years, Rome was controlled by the decisions of a group of senators. The Roman Senate always existed though, even though they only served to regulate the monarch or the emperor during the times of the kingdom and the empire. The years of the Roman Kingdom were written about retrospectively which has led many historians to wonder exactly how true the story of the seven kings of Rome is. If it is not strictly true, it is believed that a settlement at Rome existed there from before the earliest traditional date for the Roman Kingdom, 753 BCE. We can say with confidence that the Roman independent state was in existence for over a millennium in time. This fact alone is considerable and makes the fact that Rome had to move with the times much more palatable than instinct may dictate. One of the biggest challenges that Rome faced while they were expanding was how to treat the people of the lands that they annexed. During the years of the Republic, you had to be born to Roman citizens to be a Roman citizen. So if your origin was from outside Rome, such as one of the Italic tribes of the Italian peninsula, then you were not entitled to the same rights as a Roman citizen, despite being born in Roman territory. However, there are two interesting factors here to consider. Firstly, The social developments and conflicts of the 1st century BCE, which led to the end of the Republic and the establishment of the Empire, saw the rise of the popularis who fought for social change within the Empire to prevent the wealthy elite monopolising all the wealth, power and rights of the nation. 
Those people who were not ethnically Roman or of Roman heritage, but who were born in Roman-controlled territory, gained more citizens' rights. Full citizens' rights enabled the average man to ascend the political ladder, but the irony was that the political ladder led to very little after the Roman Republic became the Roman Empire, with there no longer being a republican government. There was also more to this process than immediately meets the eye. It appears that if your land was taken over by the Romans, that the Romans used citizenship as a carrot for those conquered people to attain through loyal behaviour. So if you didn't rebel against it, your reward would be a level of citizenship which would provide you with Roman rights. You could even look down your nose at your neighbours who hadn't yet been accepted. Ultimately, this situation resolved itself with the Edict of Caracalla, which declared that all free men of the Roman Empire were granted full Roman citizenship. So you can really track the progress of social reformation and the progression of citizenship over a number of centuries from the beginning of the Roman Republic through to the latter stages of the Roman Empire. The radical changes made within Rome during the first century BCE resulted in one man being entrusted as the premier statesman of the entire Republic. Augustus went through the motions of retiring his responsibilities before being invited to the Roman Senate to take full responsibility. The Roman Senate echoed the feelings of the Roman citizens. They were absolutely tired of constant bickering and civil conflicts. A change was long overdue and when the change was made it would bring a period of relative peace to the Roman Empire known as Pax Romana which would last throughout the first century and most of the second century. So the transition solved a lot of the Republic's problems. The risk to there being an emperor would be the character of the emperor. Where Augustus was quite dutiful, this would be a good thing, as we can talk more about the pre-empire years of his life when we refer to him as Octavian. As the emperor, there is much less drama surrounding him, which strongly suggests that he did his job without getting too egotistical. However, if we fast forward to the fifth emperor of Rome, who we commonly know as Nero, then we see a completely different scenario. Nero was a loose cannon who totally lost control of the empire, and this caused a huge problem in Rome as the Senate decided that they needed to step in and depose him, which caused a power vacuum and civil unrest. Nero's predecessor was Claudius, and Claudius was a little bit unconventional in his methodology of his imperial duties, which caused a different set of concerns for the Senate. So although we speak of the Pax Romana during the first two centuries of the Roman Empire, having a senior statesman above all others could come with its national challenges. Government Despite the fact that the Roman nation went from a monarchical institution to a republic 
and then back to a monarchical style with the formation of the Roman Empire. The one mainstay of the nation was the existence of the Roman Senate. It was originally made up of powerful and wealthy wise elders who sought to regulate the power of the king before overthrowing what was regarded as an unhealthy monarchy ruled by a despotic monarch. Then, being under pressure to reform due to the completely elitist way in which the Senate operated, preventing members of non-aristocratic families qualifying to become senators, causing the Senate to reform its qualifying criteria to include the non-aristocratic citizens, known in Rome as the plebeians. The Roman senators would form the Senate and meet at the Senate, often debating the latest issues at the Roman Forum. When the Roman Republic decided to have an emperor, it would go back to having to work alongside a monarch, and subsequently similar issues would reappear. Claudius would try to promote himself as a member of the Senate who simply stood as a primary statesman. But Nero was very much a man who attempted to operate in open independence from the Senate. During the years of the Republic, the military legions would be governed by two elected consuls who would always be accountable to the Senate. After two consuls had served their terms of one year in office, they would then automatically qualify to become members of the Roman Senate. But by the end of the Republic, we see that Octavian, as a young man, was shoehorned into the Senate by Cicero before becoming a consul. Senators were appointed by the censors, who were likely to have been advised. But with the transition of the Republic to the Empire, the appointment of senators would have transferred over to the emperor. The amount of senators in the Senate increased over time. Originally, there may have been around 300 senators, which increased to around 600 by the time of the formation of the Roman Empire. The senators would discuss the issues of the nation and vote on the ultimate decisions. Being a senator was a lifelong commitment and the individuals were often entitled to special privileges within Rome, almost like being treated like a celebrity. Senatorial status would generally only be revoked if you decided to do anything criminal or be involved in an affair that would create a conflict of interest such as foreign financial investments. The Roman provinces of the empire were often overseen by a senator, though especially for the purpose of raising tax money. During the later years of the Republic, tax debts could be sold to wealthy individuals known as equestrians in an act known as tax farming. These equestrians were often happy to buy the debt, allowing the Senate to recover the debt quickly and give the burden of pursuing the individual to the equestrian. This was particularly useful for pursuing tax money from individuals in far-off lands such as Asia Minor. The equestrians were often the people who contributed cavalry to the Roman army, which is where we get the horse connection with the name. This would give rise to a social class called the equities. 
In the years of the Roman Empire, equestrians could be commissioned to take up an official role as a procuratore, who would be responsible for collecting taxes from provincial governors, regulating the governor's loyalty to the empire by monitoring corruption. So the whole system of acquisition of tax money was far more organised. This level of better organisation also extended to the Roman banking system, which had often been carried out in a very independent manner, with the bankers earning the right to bank by building a reputation as a reliable banker. Senators were not allowed to be directly involved in banking and so there didn't appear to be any kind of firm banking legislation until after the formation of the empire, when bankers were encouraged to document their transactions. This was probably an inevitability as in the early years of the Republic, much in the way of wealth sharing was made in the way of private loans. So an individual may lend money to another individual and if that money couldn't be paid back then the offending individual would become a slave of the lender. In the days of the empire a private loan was much more likely to be documented with terms and witnessed with the borrower's property rather than their freedom being put down as risk if the loan was not repaid. Tax money would go into the Roman treasury, which was called the Aerarium, which would contribute towards the upkeep of public property. Certainly when Agrippa was conducting all of the incredible improvements to Rome's sanitation systems and the building of aqueducts and buildings, this would have been funded by the money in the treasury. The Romans did have a bit of a reputation for being careless with the money in the treasury which would often involve them selling public property to private investors as a quick means to raise money. Another project that would have been funded from the treasury would have been the construction of Roman roads. The concept of long distance road building was first discussed during our episodes on the Achaemenid Persian Empire when King Darius the Great invested heavily in his royal road system that enabled quick passage through the empire for military, trade and diplomatic vehicles and convoys to move as quickly as possible. Certainly when the Romans were building their road systems, the transport of military was at the forefront of their priorities. Extensive and significant road building had been an ongoing thing in Europe and Asia, certainly since the turn of the 5th century BCE. And we can see the earliest evidence of this within Roman lands, with an example being the Appian Way. The Appian Way was built at the turn of the 3rd century BCE and connected Rome to the lands of the south of the Italian peninsula. We mentioned it as the roadway that Crassus and Pompey used to display the decapitated heads of those slaves who had revolted against the Republic under Spartacus during the 1st century BCE. As the empire expanded, so the Romans invested heavily on road building throughout the empire, from the British Isles to the Iberian Peninsula to Mesopotamia, when Rome was at its greatest extent. The advantage of the transition from republic to empire meant that 
that decision making was being channelled and that there was an element of uniformity about the governance of the empire, which was far less organised in the days of the bickering senators and corruption. Now, as an empire controlled by an emperor, Rome could concentrate on improving itself with a clear direction. The road network was just a small part of the extensive building works that improved Rome. Now public money was being used to build impressive buildings such as temples and the systems mentioned earlier that would bring water into the city via ceramic pipework and aqueducts. The Romans took pride in their building works continuing the Greek tradition of classical architecture designed to be pleasing to the eye of the average man and the eye of the gods. Even investment in harbours would make naval military and trade missions easier to succeed in. A lot of the hard work of road construction is likely to have been carried out by members of Rome's slave class. It could be as much as 25% of Rome's population were part of the slave class. Many citizens of conquered territories would have been consigned to a life of slavery within the Roman Republic. And that doesn't necessarily mean a life of misery. If you were born into the slave class, such as a child born to Carthaginian parents following the destruction of Carthage, then you would have understood your place in Roman society and very likely accepted it. Due to the fact that the wealthiest people of Rome are likely to have been the slave owners, it may well have been the case that many slaves were well looked after and lived quite a comfortable life. What use would a slave be if they were miserable, poorly and hungry? It made sense that you should keep your slaves healthy. Slaves may have been very practically skilled and even utilised to carry out such tasks as cooking and educating children, so in many cases they were valued members of the family. However, we should not totally disguise the entire truth here. Valued slaves as important members of the family are one thing. But some slaves would have had their labour provided as part of a workforce, chained to each other to prevent escape and forced to do the menial work, such as agriculture and road building, which could often leave slaves with painful arthritic conditions as their lives went on. Military Much of the slave class was made up of individuals that had been imported from acquired lands as the Romans expanded their territory. In order to gain territory, Rome would need an effective military. When Augustus took control of the Roman Empire, the Roman army was made up of 80 legions. A legion would consist of a few thousand soldiers, with a few thousand cavalry. And as Rome expanded and transitioned from the Republic into the Principate, which is the name of the early years of the Roman Empire, the legion would have also been more likely to include auxiliary troops made up of non-Roman citizens and soldiers. What stands out most about the Roman army is how well and intricately organised it was. And this is evident by the sheer number of Roman commanders that have gone down in history 
for their successes. We wouldn't celebrate so many individuals if it wasn't for the fact that the Roman military was a very well organised in general. Each legion comprised of smaller units such as centuries which were typically made up of 80 legionaries commanded by a centurion. The reason why it was called a century is because it was made up of 100 individuals originally but had reduced by the days of the empire. Much of this level of organisation can be put down in part to the prominent popularis statesman Gaius Marius who was famed for his successful reforms of the Roman military around the turn of the 1st century BCE and something we spoke about during episode 31. Roman legionaries would have had a warrior mentality drilled into them during their training. They would have believed themselves to be closely linked to Mars, the Roman god of war, and as such they would have believed themselves to be perceived as indestructible. Among the legionaries were highly skilled engineers, and this shouldn't be all that surprising. Armies had always had to turn their hands quickly to construction of bridges and trenches and forts and walls. Roman armies would be able to construct siege engines equipped with towers and rams, but that wasn't something that Romans invented, more like something they perfected. Expert siege engine construction can be traced back through the Hellenistic societies and right the way back to the 8th century BCE siege of Lachish conducted by the Assyrians on the Judean city where such siege engines are depicted on reliefs. The Romans shared some of the old Spartan attitude to the military being an absolute part of Roman life. All Roman citizens were expected to contribute to the army. Men were expected to produce sons which would grow up to be Roman soldiers. Women were expected to raise these children because of course the men were required to be available for military duty. Those older and wiser Romans with military experience may well have been kept on to take command of military units and also to inspect every aspect of the military from the legionaries to their weapons to their encampments to make sure that everything was exactly as it should be. This meticulous attitude would often give the Roman armies an edge over their opponents. Some of the best physical individuals may have even become members of the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard were brought to prominence by Augustus who commissioned them to be his personal bodyguards. Originally, they were bodyguards for high-ranking officials within the Roman Republic and the Senate. The Praetorian Guard were the closest men to the Roman Emperor of the day and as such they may have formulated opinions of that Emperor which could lead to dissension so the Emperor could not always trust their Praetorian Guard. Religion as much as military aspects affected the lives of most Roman citizens, so would religion. As was typical in most ancient societies, the Romans would respect a pantheon of gods who would represent many physical and abstract aspects of life and the universe around them. The original pantheon of Roman gods is thought to have been constructed from different influences, notably Etruscan, Sabine and Greek. In Rome, 
there was no priestly class which did exist in some other ancient societies. Priests would have been political administrators because Roman religion absolutely underpinned every part of Roman society. The most senior priestly role in Rome was that of Pontifex Maximus. The Pontifex Maximus would conduct rituals and would live next to the house of the Vestal Virgins, who were the priestesses of the goddess Vesta. All of the pontifices or priests would be responsible for advising senators and citizens about how to appease the gods. The role of Pontifex Maximus would pass into the emperor's own hands when Augustus became the first Roman emperor. So the Roman emperor himself could justify his own decrees by stating that they were in the interest of appeasing the gods. For the regular citizens, life would have been full of rituals and superstitions. Rituals would have been performed to please the gods, while superstitions would contain ideas that insignificant actions could either attract or dismiss luck. Such as the idea of entering buildings with the left foot first, supposed to attract better luck. Roman children would have been told the tale of a Corinthian woman called Mormo, who ate her children. This story migrated from Greece to Rome and was used in both worlds as a means to scare children into behaving themselves. The Romans had their own form of religious ceremonies, some of which involved animal sacrifice. And when Roman citizens died, specific rituals were carried out, such as putting a coin in the deceased's mouth to pay Charon, the ferryman of the newly deceased, to take the soul safely to the afterlife. Entertainment Not only were the Romans committed to religious ceremony, but they really did enjoy a good bit of honest entertainment. Here we can see links to ancient Greek traditions. The Greeks built theatres in which performances took place for the entertainment of others. The Romans would continue this kind of cultural tradition, but would make it that much more impressive. Greeks built semicircular theatres, but the Romans perfected the amphitheatre, which was ovular, with the performance taking place in the middle, and the pinnacle being the Roman Colosseum in the city of Rome. It resembles a modern sports stadium when the sheer magnitude of its size is considered. As many as 50,000 spectators were able to pack themselves into this huge amphitheatre. It has been reported that as many as 9,000 wild animals were killed during the course of the Colosseum's inaugural games. Undoubtedly, considered to be a sacrifice to the gods as a justification. The combatants would have been the gladiators, who despite their physical impressiveness and their fighting ability, would have been regarded individually as expendable, especially if they lost their lives in the spirit of entertainment. It is likely that the gladiators themselves generally would not have relished the prospect of wild animal combat and possible death. When wild animals were not being slaughtered or dismembering some unfortunate gladiator, 
then slaves and gladiators would go into combat with each other, all purely for the entertainment of Roman citizens. Criminals sentenced to death would have been also useful fodder for such sport. Other more humane forms of entertainment would have included athletic events, which is something that would have followed on from the Greek traditions such as the Olympic Games. Just a short walk in the direction of the Tiber River from the Colosseum would have enabled you as a Roman citizen to reach the Circus Maximus. This was a large stadium which was long and suitable for chariot racing and could have accommodated as many as 150,000 spectators. So the Romans were really putting on some shows that were on the type of scale of a modern sporting spectacular or a modern music concert. We could be forgiven for just seeing Roman citizens as a bunch of bloodthirsty hooligans with an insatiable desire to see humans and animals slaughtered for their own pleasure. However, there were also more peaceful means for Romans to enjoy their own culture. Romans would certainly pride themselves on the impressive and opulent appearance of their architecture. Certainly, the Roman Colosseum is an absolute sight to behold, even in the 21st century, and some of the ornate columns created during the imperial years are awesome to look at firsthand, and you have to marvel at the skill and craftsmanship. The Romans were also well known for their mosaics, with large images carefully constructed using tiny coloured stones. The Romans continued the Greek tradition for sculpting, with many of their leading statesmen having busts of their head, neck and upper chest made, so that an accurate portrayal of their head could be displayed inside and outside of Rome. However, the Romans are well known for their wall painting and bronze statues, which is believed to evolved from early Etruscan traditions as opposed to Hellenistic ones. A lot of Roman artwork would portray military successes, which would always serve as a reminder to the Roman population of how proud they could be of their home state and how dominant Rome was over the rest of the world, at least through Roman eyes. So now we have a bit of an understanding about the general culture of the Roman Republic and the early Roman Empire. So next week, we investigate what happened in the newly formed Roman Empire after the passing of the first Roman Emperor, Augustus. So that was a bit of a summary of aspects of Roman life that we would not have ordinarily have covered um, when talking about the chronological story of Rome. Uh, there's a couple of things in there that deserved a little bit more detail. And obviously, uh, the Roman, um, you know, if we look at Rome and we look at the history of Rome, if we sort of track that period of time back from now, you know, the Roman Empire and, and uh, the Roman state, if you like, the kingdom the Republic, the Empire, that whole thing, you know, is is older than the country of England, if we're honest about it. So um, it, from from uh, that whole period of time, it's a really expansive period of time that deserves uh, a lot of investigation. It would have had to have changed and um, radically so to keep up with the affairs of the modern world that it lived in. Certainly um, the challenges that Rome faced uh, during its later years would have been vastly different from the ones that it faced during its earlier years. So 
it's interesting to see how Rome evolved and how aspects of Rome changed over that over that time period. Now, if you're enjoying the project, and I know one of you, one or two of you are, as you've been kind enough to write in, and I'll um, I'll get round to that in a moment. Uh, but if you are enjoying the project, well, then why not consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen to it? So um, send it flying up the charts of wherever you listen to it and let's get some more listeners on board. And uh, if that's not enough, you feel like you haven't done enough after you've done that, then also consider donating to the podcast. And you can do that for as little as $1 a month. You can actually qualify for some rewards as well, and they're all outlined on the Patreon web pages. And in order to access that, just simply go along to the wonderful History of the World podcast.com website where you can actually click around and explore a number of things. And, uh, oh, excuse me. And um, uh, there you can sign up to make a monthly contribution. And uh, when you do that, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, as has Kim Bushman and Michael Holmes. So thank you very much for um, signing up to make those uh, donations to the podcast. It will really help to pay the bills, basically. Um, so it will pay to um, uh, to invest in, in new materials, which always helps me to triangulate from more sources and, and make the podcast uh, even more um, authentic as it should be. So um, consider that. And um, if that's still not enough, then why not drop me a line? Write me a message, as some people have done, um, such as Eric Morgan, who's written um, that he's on episode eight at the moment. Excellent stuff, Chris. Love the non-stuffy voice. Absolutely do not compromise on that. Well, it's my voice, so I'm, I'm, that's going to be tricky. But uh, it puts every blooming arts and history program on TV is fronted by the statutory posh academic. <laughs> well, what a great sentence. Uh, there is so much bias, unconscious or otherwise, uh, that was disappearing but has slowly returned. Unconscious, that's when you get knocked out, isn't it? I think you mean subconscious. Um, I listened because no matter how many wiki entries I read on our ancestors, it wouldn't sink in. You've clarified it as much as it could be given the raw material you're dealing with, me. Uh, the section heading reverb has grown on me, still not 100%, but it's a signature, so I hope it stays. Lockdown gold, thanks. Thank you so much, Eric. That's a, a lovely message. Um, yeah, sometimes you can... Oh, that's the biggest problem with Wikipedia, is because there's so many authors contributing to these um, to, to these articles. It can become very sort of confusing to read, and it, and, and you're often reading... Um, you know, in, in a context of whoever that writer is and that might be on some academic level. Listen, I've never really had uh, the ability to absorb complex information very well. And um, that's not um, that's not me having a go at my intelligence. I think, you know, I, I certainly have got intelligence, but I really don't have a lot of time for intellectuals who speak too intellectually about a subject. I just want to know the entertaining facts and I think that's what most people do and I, and I think 
that was going through my mind when I started out on this project, that I really wanted it to be accessible and understandable. And if I was not able to explain things well enough, then, uh, you know, the podcast wasn't worth the time that I was putting into it. So whenever anyone sends me a message to say that um, they're able to understand the podcast well, then I feel like I'm succeeding on my mission. Michael Nelson has put... uh, Chris... I have just recently come across your podcast and now listen to it every day. I started at the beginning and have listened to about 20 episodes so far. I'm amazed at your ambition. I look forward very much to travelling through time and history. Please keep it up. Um, Thank you so much, Michael. And also thank you, Eric, uh, for taking the time to write in. It really does mean a lot when you sort of write in and and tell me your thoughts and opinions. And especially when when you actually compliment the work, it's... It's uh, it's quite motivating and, and makes me feel good about what we're doing. So thank you so much. Thank you. Before I move on, I just want to make mention to some of the existing members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Some of you um, over the course of the last couple of years have made incredible significant contributions to the project and I just can't thank you enough for sacrificing so much of your personal earnings really just to you know just to help me to keep this project going it is terrifically humbling and um, as such um, some of you have have qualified for rewards which I I probably never thought I'd ever give out to anybody but um, the um, some some of you are now um, have now gone through the threshold where you've qualified to get a History of the World podcast T-shirt, and and even some of you are now um, qualifying for the History of the World podcast mug. To be honest with you, these have not been produced yet, and and we're still looking into how um, we're going to do it. But it shouldn't take too long to nail down a, a supplier and get these uh, items distributed. So just. Be a little bit patient. They will come. There's absolutely no problem with um, the uh, the the fact that we're gonna do them. They're still gonna come, uh, but we're just still finalising all the details. So just uh, just be patient with me, and then you know we'll get that sorted out for you. So they'll be on their way. You've earned them, and um, and I'm terrifically grateful to everyone who has um, crossed those thresholds. And and it will be my pleasure to send you a little something as a thank you. Let's have a quick look at some of the reviews that we've had come through. We've got Minnie Mud from the United States of America has written, uh, Thank you. Well-researched and produced a comprehensive learning tool, clear and concise, well-spoken enunciation, and the Texan accent is easy to understand. Thank you for all the work you're doing to put these together. I'm just a dozen episodes in and looking forward to hearing them all. Um, I, love, I think I've moved a few thousand miles, haven't I? The Texan accent. Well, I'm not sure that this little old uh, podcaster is from Texas, but uh, thank you anyway. Mike Holmes 321 has written in, uh, uh, well, he's reviewed, sorry, the podcast and put, uh, it's from Great Britain, he's put, surely the most essential history podcast. I've always been keen on history, especially the classical world, but often felt mild frustration in the fact that at 32 years old, I never knew enough to have an educated conversation about popular historical events. That all changed once I double binged Chris's podcast while at work. 
The host, Chris, delivers a clear, well-researched and non-biased account of otherwise complicated parts of world history. I can now read books on the likes of ancient Greece or Egypt without being lost from the start. It's like having a key... Uh, it's like having the key to the city. I cannot recommend this podcast enough. In my honest opinion, it's probably the most important history podcast available. Support Chris and keep this train going, guys. Mike from Colchester, Essex. So, uh, Will, you're from uh, from Essex like me. So just down the road in Colchester, where we've got that wonderful castle in Colchester. It's absolutely fantastic. I, uh, I... I can't resist going back to Colchester Castle. There's so much history there, and it and it really links us back to uh, Roman occupation of of Britain as well. Um, so anyone that lives in Essex that's not been to Colchester Castle and listens to this podcast, I think you must be mad. So <laughs> just get yourself down to that castle. Really, it's fantastic, and and you're very lucky to live over there, Mike. And thank you so much for that review. Very very kind indeed. So. Um, Moving on to next week, it really is time for us to get um, stuck into the imperial years of Rome and, and, and start talking about the Principates and um, leave this uh, transition period behind. We've spent so much time, haven't we, talking about what happened during the first century BCE, the, the links of the Gracchi brothers, Marius and Sulla, Julius Caesar, um, Mark Antony, Octavian ultimately, who became Augustus. Now we need to just get on with it, really, and get into the Principate years and find out what happened during the years of the Roman Empire. So the next few weeks we'll be looking into that, and that will all start next week. So thank you so much for listening. Um, I hope um, you've enjoyed this week's episode, a bit of a departure from the usual chronological story, a little bit of a... Uh, an investigation into the aspects but back to the chronology next week Uh, make sure you join us then have a great week and don't forget to be good do you want more from the history of the world podcast then visit our website historyoftheworldpodcast.com you can join our discussion forum and find us on social media support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.